Just a few things before we dive into our text this morning. We have started a prayer series, so I'll be talking about that in a few moments. But last Sunday, if you did not make it out here, we gave out a prayer devotional, 15 days. And so if you have not picked that up yet, I believe we have a few more left in the lobby at the Next Steps area. Uh, if, if there are no more of those available there, then you can go on to woodsidebible.org and download it there as well as a PDF file. Uh, but that's something that we've been practicing and doing as a family this week. I really hope that you've been participating in that as well. This Wednesday, the Thrive experience that we'll have for all of our middle school, high school, as well as any adults who would like to come, of course, uh, we'll be studying the text that's going to be talked about in the journal for that day and have a lot of worship as well. So it's just going to be a special live event for us to pray together in community, uh, to worship together, uh, to be taught together kind of in an extended setting on Wednesday night. Uh, so we're looking forward to that this Wednesday. We hope that you'll join us for that. And we've been uh, working through, if you went through the journal, the first seven days are focused on the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6, and that is where we are this morning. So if you have a Bible, please make your way to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. It'd be great for you to read along in this text. We're going to be throughout this chapter. If you did not uh, bring one today, you'll notice there's some Bibles in the seats in front of you underneath where there's racks, and we'll put the verses on the screen, but always wonderful to follow along in the Word itself. And as you're turning there, I'm just so grateful for the Word of God grateful for its authority. I'm grateful for its truth. I'm grateful that it is our guidepost for life. Don't ever let anybody tell you this book is not relevant today. It has absolute divine authority and immediate relevancy to all of our lives today. And so it is our privilege that we get to explore it together. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6 today. I'll read verse 1. And then I'm going to pick up at verses 16 through 18, which will be our specific focus. So let's look at these words together. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And when you fast, verse 16, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Before we dive into this together, would you please take a moment and pray that God would speak to your heart through his word, and then I'll pray for all of us as we explore this text together. Go ahead and pray now. Lord, we come together to hear from you. We come expectantly. We come with all of our trials, tribulations, and issues, and scars. We come with our hurts, and our pains, and our sins. We come with our joys, and our moments of fulfillment. And Father, today we acknowledge that we just want to hear from you. 
Your word speaks, and so I pray, Father, that as we explore these words of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that you would speak to each of our hearts, that you would apply it to our lives, Father, that we would certainly see the importance of this thing we call fasting, that we would understand that we all are filled with insatiable appetites, yet we want to have an appetite that hungers and thirsts for you. Speak to us now. We invite you here. Amen. On December 26, 2004, a 9.1 magnitude earthquake hit just off the coast of Sumatra, Indonesia. It is the third largest earthquake recorded and caused the entire planet to vibrate. The tsunami created from it affected 14 countries around the Indian Ocean, and on some of those beaches, a wave crashed upon them that was over 100 feet high. As a result, around 250,000 people were killed, and another 1.75 million lost their homes or were displaced. It is one of the deadliest natural disasters in human history. In India specifically, 18,000 people were estimated to have lost their life, and another 650,000 people lost their homes or villages and were displaced as a result of the tsunami. Several months later, in the spring of 2005, I was part of a small team from Woodside to provide a little relief for our Indian partnerships. We have a missionary partner there by the name of Mano Daniel. He's a national. He was born there. And he has a track ministry that shares basically the message of the gospel. And through distributing these tracks around the entire nation, literally tens and tens of thousands of people have come to faith. And churches have been planted. So it's a church planting ministry. And so we had collected an offering for humanitarian efforts in response to this tsunami that devastated some of the towns where he had been planting churches. And we took the monies over there to give to him so that he could distribute those to the towns, villages, and pastors of the areas. And for the rest of our time, we spent it going from fishing village to fishing village that was devastated by the tsunami and distributing to families and individuals a few items Five to be exact, a bag of potatoes, a bag of rice, a bag of beans, and some onions and one or two other things. Hundreds of people would line up for hours to get that food and then carry it sometimes miles back to their temporary shelter. That food was meant to last them and their household a week. What shocked me was when I looked at the amounts because you could carry it just in your arms. There were no bags. There were no grocery carts. They were just taking it in their arms back to their homes. One person could carry the amount of food that we were giving them. And that was meant to feed a family. And the families typically were multiple generations all within one temporary shelter. And that was meant to feed them for an entire week, two, three meals a day. When I looked at it, I could see nothing more than perhaps three dinners. And I was shocked at what they were living on. I remember coming back home and walking through the aisles of Nino Salvagios and thinking, I can't imagine trying to explain this 
seen to those families. All the fresh fruits and vegetables, all the fresh meat and seafoods, all the healthy options, as well as all the not-so-healthy options, all the gluten-free options in every section that you could desire or need, knowing that I can basically buy just whatever, not just whatever I need, but I can basically buy whatever I want, far beyond my need. I can't imagine trying to explain to these families why I needed to fill up an entire grocery cart, maybe even two on occasion, for a family of five. I also can't imagine trying to explain to these impoverished families why so many other people in our nation walk these same aisles with the same ability to buy whatever they need and whatever they want, but they buy next to nothing because they are intentionally starving themselves so as to fit into a pair of jeans or get ready for a vacation or make sure they're staying underneath their calorie count in their app for the day. Our issues of obesity and anorexia are two sides of the same coin. We live between two equally obsessive and idolatrous extremes, stuffing ourselves or starving ourselves. It is by no means an exaggeration to say that for many Americans who really worship their own bodies, as Paul says of some of the people around the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 3, their God, lowercase g, is their belly. Who do you think about more throughout the day? The God of heaven or the God of your gut? It's a relevant question for both the overeater as well as the overly conscious eater. We can all relate because all of us have a tendency to struggle in one of these directions and sometimes in both. Our relationship with food, our relationship with ourselves, the point is, is not always healthy. It's not always healthy. And it doesn't stop there. Our relationship with God can suffer, metaphorically, the hunger pains of starvation or the strain of constantly feasting without necessary exercise to burn it off, to live it out. Both cases make you spiritually out of shape, spiritually weak. What's fascinating, what's ironic truly, is the American evangelical has a loaded spiritual grocery store. It is loaded, friends. You want community? We've got all kinds of options. There's aisle after aisle of community offered. Neighborhood groups, pick your night, pick your location, pick your demographic, pick your day. You want biblical resources? Pick from all the apps, all the Bibles, all the online resources that are available to you. Uh, you don't even need to read the books. You can have them read to you. You want worship experiences. Pick a church. There's one on every corner. You want more preaching. Pick a podcast. Pick a megachurch to watch on TV. But with everything we have, are we actually making healthy disciples? How active are we with the gospel in our community? A measure of spiritual health. How passionate are we in our worship? We just sang that's one expression of worship. How passionate were we of our God who is worthy of our worship? It's an expression of our spiritual health. How fruitful 
Are we in our lives? Are we obese, having feasted on the word of God, filling our minds with all kinds of information, but never exercising our faith? Are we anorexic, starving ourselves because of our individualism from community, from prayer, from the word? Are we healthy? This is a question that haunts me at night for this church family. What can we do together to strengthen our relationship with God when we are weak? Fasting is one of the nutrients we need. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus invites us to fast to maintain a healthy relationship with God. That's what he's inviting us into. This week is the second week of this series called Pray First. We started with a focus on prayer. And last week specifically, we talked about communal prayer, prayer with other believers, and how communal prayer or prayer itself is a discipline, a habit, a rhythm, is essential to our spiritual vitality. It's essential. It's, it's a nutrient we can't live without. We can't be healthy without it. And so that's why we've been working through this prayer journal together to practice this, to get into the habit of feeding ourselves through communion with the Father in prayer. Fasting is another discipline or habit or rhythm that helps us develop a healthy relationship with God. But I believe, and I don't think any of us would argue this point, that it is perhaps the most neglected discipline we find in the scriptures. If we were to take a poll this morning... Uh, other than maybe some of you might have grown up in a Catholic setting or a different uh, denominational setting that emphasized fasting, perhaps during times of Lent, that most American evangelical Christians hardly ever fast. They don't understand the importance, the need, or really the results. Why is it necessary? Especially being that it is not commanded and that is true. It is not commanded in the text. So why fast at all? Uh, it's, it's what Jesus is talking about here in this portion. And I find this interesting myself that Matthew chapter 6, let's remind ourselves, is the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. And if Jesus is preaching his greatest sermon with the most important content, the content that made the cut, the content that is absolutely instrumental to his message, his ministry, and the kingdom of God and to the gospel, isn't it fascinating that within this sermon, right in the middle of it, he thinks that fasting is worth talking about? Would you put that on your list for the most important content of the greatest sermon ever preached? But it was on his. Why? I don't know how much we understand fasting. And so before we can get into talking about how we fast, which is really what Jesus is addressing here in these few verses, we first need to ask the question, does God expect us to fast? And what is fasting? The first two questions, does God expect us to fast? And what is fasting? Those two questions would have been completely understood by the Jewish hearers of the Sermon on the Mount. They would have completely understood this. They would have needed no clarification, no encouragement. It was part of their life, their upbringing, their culture. Uh, the third question, how we should fast, that's what Jesus addressed. That's what they needed to hear. We need all three, though, because for us, there's a distance between the world of Jesus, the Jewish setting that he preached to, and our world today. 
So we need to gain a little understanding so we can hear what God is actually trying to say. See, when we go to the word of God and we don't understand the context, and when the context is not preached, then we do not understand how to study it for ourselves. We do not understand how to glean from the word the truth of the word and what God is saying. So let me just take a moment and do that for us today. Let's remind ourselves that Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. He was one of the 12. And one of his central themes in writing this letter is the establishment of Jesus' kingdom, his kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount is the sermon that establishes how Jesus' kingdom works. And so if you're in his kingdom, this sermon was basically giving you the instructions on how his kingdom works. Here is the law for the kingdom of Jesus. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the sermon that tells us how to function, how to live, how to express our faith. He's talking about Jesus' kingdom being established. Matthew's gospel, it's also important to note, is is the most Jewish as well of all the gospels. And what I mean by that is that it was written by a Jew for other Jews, and it assumes an understanding of the Jewish way of life. Well, for the Jew, there were three primary activities that were part of their religious life as a people. And if you grew up as a young boy, a young girl, this would have been part of your upbringing. It would have been part of your education. It would have been part of your rhythms. It would have been part of your everyday, yearly calendar life. Three things. The first is giving to charity, or what they called almsgiving. The second is prayer. And the third is fasting. Jesus talks about all three central components right here in this chapter. And what he's basically saying is, I want you to know how these 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 disciplines are meant to be practiced in my kingdom because your leaders aren't giving you a good example. So I'm going to demonstrate for you, explain to you, share with you how they are meant to be practiced. And you'll notice a pattern as I go through these. He gives two commands for each, for almsgiving, for prayer, and for fasting. The first command is an admonition. That means a warning. He says, basically, don't be like your leaders They've got it all wrong. That's not how my kingdom functions. And then another one is a command of affirmation. Here's how my followers are supposed to live. So let's look at this together. Look back at verse one. He starts out by saying, beware, warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. He's saying, that's not how my kingdom works. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2, everybody look at this with me. Thus, when you give to the needy, what's he addressing first? Almsgiving, giving to charity. Okay, you see it there? When you give to the needy, and notice the language he uses. Not if you give to the needy, when you give to the needy. It is an expectation. It is assumed that giving is a normal part of the life of the follower. So he says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. That's not how my kingdom works. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, 
Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's how my kingdom works. Look at verse five. And when you pray, the second, not if, not on occasion, not this is something that's a total option for you, so if you go without it, no big deal. When you pray, it assumes that it's happening. It, it, it's assuming an expectation. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand. They love to pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, not if, but when, expectation, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. You might be thinking, well, Steve, then why did you share last week that we need to pray in community? Well, it's true that when you study the scriptures, most of the prayers we find are done in the context of community. That's what's normative. However, what Jesus is addressing here is not whether we should pray in community or individually. He's talking about people who pray as a performance. And so he's saying, don't pray as a performance. There are times and occasions it's important to pray on your own. And in those moments when you're pouring out your heart to God, do so in secret. That's also appropriate. And then verse 16, after he shares the Lord's Prayer, we come to the third aspect of this Jewish life. We've talked about almsgiving, giving. We've talked about praying. And how do you think he's going to start this one? The same exact way. And when you fast. Does God expect us to fast? pretty clear, isn't it? You guys can say, right? Yes. So he expects us to fast, yet we all know that for the most part, many of us struggle with this discipline or barely know anything about it. So we've answered the first question, does God expect us to fast? He did not command us to fast, but does God expect us to fast? Yes. Secondly, well then, what is fasting? If you like to take notes, here's the definition that I like. This is one that I try to remember, fasting is abstaining from an appetite. Does not necessarily mean food. Abstaining from an appetite to focus on and demonstrate your appetite for the Lord. Let me share it again. Fasting is abstaining from an appetite to focus on and demonstrate your appetite for the Lord. In the Old Testament, the Jews were required to fast on two days a year, and their fast was from food. The first day was on the Day of Atonement. It was the idea that on the Day of Atonement, uh, the high priest would come together with the people, and it was the only day of the year he would enter into a place called the Holy of Holies. He'd enter into the presence of God, and he'd offer a sacrifice for the sins of God's people. And so they would collectively, as a nation, as a people, they would fast, which was a demonstration to mourn their sin, to mourn the fact that they had fallen short of God's holiness. And so they fasted from food on the Day of Atonement. The second day was the Jewish New Year, which for us would fall kind of in mid-September, and so they would fast on that day as well. Well, the Pharisees, their leaders who wanted to express themselves as the truly religious, the ones who really know God, they would fast every Monday and every Thursday of every week. And when they did that, 
they would put on what's called sackcloth and ashes. Maybe you've heard about sackcloth and ashes. You've read about it in the book of Job or other places within the scripture. Sackcloth was basically a black yarn that was made out of goat's hair. And so they would put on black clothing made of goat's hair that was intentionally an irritant to the skin. It was uncomfortable, and that was the point. They would put on black, uncomfortable clothing to demonstrate their mourning, either over their sin or over the death of a friend or loved one. They would do the same with ashes. They would take ashes and place them on the ground or even place them on their head while they were wearing sackcloth to communicate to everyone else that they were in this process of mourning. So the Pharisees, what they were doing is they would dress themselves up in sackcloth and they'd sit in the ashes or place the ashes upon their head twice a week just to demonstrate to everybody else how religious they truly are. Look how much we consider our sin. I'm thinking about it so much more than all of you. And that means I'm closer to God than you are. They were professionals. And Jesus said, you are not healthy. You think you are, but you're dying. You're obese or you're anorexic. Either side, it doesn't matter. You are spiritually weak. That's not how my kingdom works. So he says in verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now he gets into how we fast. And Jesus gives us three principles that will help all of us here this morning maintain a healthy relationship with God through fasting. The first is we fast relationally, not religiously. We fast relationally, not religiously. Let me explain. God was not impressed with the Pharisees' religious acts that weren't motivated by relationship. And likewise, God is not impressed when we think we're impressive. God is not glorified when we bring glory or attention to ourselves. He never has been and he never will be. We try this game all the time. If not out loud, at least we play it in our minds. You know how it goes. You're a master at it, just like I am. Somebody's treating you wrongly in a relationship. Perhaps it's a spouse, and you think to yourself, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a friend, and you think to yourself, look what they're doing, and look how patient I've been. Look how gracious I've been. Man, look what they've done. But look at what I've done. And we tend to find those brothers and sisters in the Lord and we share with them all the trials and troubles we're going through with other people or in life. And we say, this is what's happened. It's so hard. And then we say, but here's what I've been doing. And then we go on to share with them all the actions that we've taken. What do our friends, I'm so sorry that you're going through that. God will get you through. You'll be all right. Just keep focusing on Jesus because you're doing everything right. That's Christian self-righteousness packaged in a nice little bow that we subtly give into. And we're doing the exact same thing that we find here in the text. Look at how righteous I am 
and how unrighteous others are. It's the same principle. It's the same thing. We tell our friends about our troubles so they will know how right and righteous our actions truly are. My kids, they constantly are saying to me, Daddy, watch. Daddy, watch me. Uh, maybe they want me to turn around and watch them, like, you know, I don't know, do a somersault, stand on their head is a common one, do a twirl, do a little toe ballet stand move, do a pass, hit a sister. I don't know. It's all kinds of different things. Sometimes I pay attention. Other times I simply don't watch. Here's the thing about our Heavenly Father. He is always watching you. He is always watching. He never has a turn to back. He is never not aware of what is happening. He is always watching. You never have to wonder. So the question is, will we be satisfied knowing that we are living for him with those fruits of the spirit when we demonstrate that patience or that kindness or that love, whatever it might be? Are we satisfied knowing we're living for him without always receiving the praise from other people? It's nice to be praised. It feels good. It feels great. What Jesus is saying is that even though being praised by people feels good, knowing that God is pleased with you feels better. Do you believe this? I know somebody who did believe that. He's our example. It's Jesus. Have you ever noticed this in his life? Have you ever noticed that Jesus never said once, did you see that? I'm pretty awesome. (laughs) And if there was ever a human being on the planet in the history of the world who could have ever said that was impressive, it could have been him. It should have been him. It was him. He could have been saying this all the time. See what I did? I took mud. I spit in it. It's gross. I wiped it on that dude's eyes. He can see. (laughs) And you know why that happened? Because I'm perfect. You can't do it because you're not. God's pleased with me, and that's why it happened. Or he's going out to his disciples in the middle of the night. Gets into the boat and says, see that? Just walked on the water. Can you do that? You want to know why you can't do that? Because you're not perfect. I'm perfect. I don't sin. Or when he stands up and says, be still. Did you see that? The clouds, they listen to me. It's fascinating, isn't it? That Jesus himself, although he had every reason on every occasion and was mistreated by his very own that he never turned to someone else to say, would you please just show me your approval so I'll feel good about myself. He always, 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 always directed all praise to the Father. Every time, without fail. 
John 14, verse 10, amongst the many passages where he said the same thing, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Everything I say, everything I do, it's all for him. It's all because of him. It's all due him. It's not about me. Over and over. Why do we fast for the Father? Well, we fast for the Father for relationship, not to score commitment points. Why do we give to the Father for relationship? Well, we do that because of our love for him, not to show off our generosity and the level of our resources. We pray for the Father for our relationship, not to sound impressive to other people. Did you hear that I like put a scriptural verse in my prayer? Wasn't that awesome? It's about relationship, motivation, not religion. We are not fasting for other people. We are not fasting to get something from God. We are fasting, or if we are fasting, we are fasting properly to give our hearts to God and to hear from God. That is why we fast. Our appetites, friends, let me talk about this for a moment. Our appetites are insatiable. They're insatiable. We will not satisfy our appetites. I've heard it said this way from John Piper. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil. The most deadly are but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. See, what happens, friends, is we have these appetites, all of us do, and those appetites slowly over time replace the appetite we have for the Father, and our first love is no longer our first love, and when that happens, that is a slow digression into idolatry that will take us far away from where peace and joy and purpose is found, and one day you look back and you say, what happened it was my appetites, things that were good, things that were created for our pleasure, food, marriage, relationship. And so through fasting, here's what we're saying. Here's why we fast. Through fasting, we're saying, I do not live for my appetites. I do not live for my physical appetites or my sexual appetites or my material appetites or even my social media appetites. We're saying, I'm not going to eat off the table of the world. I want to eat from God's table. That's all that will satisfy me. We're saying, Father, 
You've given me all that I need in Jesus. And what did Jesus say? I am the bread of life. He said to the Samaritan woman at the well, the water that I give you will become a spring of water swelling up or welling up to eternal life. Fasting, friends, builds our appetite for God by offering up our appetites for other things. What are your appetites? Let me press a little further for a moment, and then we'll go to point two and three much more briefly. I see this example a lot, and you could take it as opinion, or you could take it as something within your own heart, but I ask all of you to consider it. Just let me play out this illustration. So I'm on Facebook screaming, uh, screening through my newsfeed, and up pops a picture of a husband who's taken a picture of the flowers he just bought his wife for their anniversary. And he posts the picture with a glorious description of his wife and her beauty and his love for her. Why did that get posted? If the flowers were really for her, if the words were really for her, then why share them with everyone? Is it perhaps because there's a part of us in our heart that says, you know what, I'm going to do this nice thing for her, but I'm going to post it as well because then I'll gain the approval and the reward from others. Because my wife might gain the reward of other women thinking that she's special. And so we bring that into our lives. You know what Facebook can often become? A slippery slope to classic narcissism. Is it useful? Yes. Do I use it all the time? Yes. But friends, check your motivations, your appetites. They're subtle. They are sneaky, and no one will tell you they're wrong. So you have to look inward, and fasting helps us see that our appetite for the Father is greater than any appetite in this world. Jesus gives us a second principle that will show us how to maintain a healthy relationship with God through fasting. Verse 17, but when you fast, expectation, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may be seen by, not seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. So fast secretly, that's how we are to fast. Anointing your head with oil and washing your face was something Jews did every day. They did not have potable water where they could take a shower every day or every other day. It was once every many days. And so the important thing for them to do to maintain cleanliness was to anoint their bodies with oil, wash their face, and wash their hands. So Jesus is basically saying, put on your deodorant. Do the normal stuff. Like, look normal. Don't Act like your life is like, oh, I'm so hungry. Why are you so hungry? Well, I'm not eating. Why? Because I'm seeking out God and his righteousness. (laughs) You know what I mean. The point is that fasting like giving is not a performance. Do you know what fasting really leads to? You know what fasting truly is? It's worship. Have you ever thought about it that way? When you remind your heart through fasting that nothing is more important to you than God, that act is worship. 
When you put him first, your, your first appetite, your first love, and, and you declare that through giving up other appetites, that in itself is worship. So why fast? Because fasting helps us become passionate worshipers of God. Saying, you are first. You are my strongest appetite. You are what I hunger for. I'm absolutely helpless without you. That causes us to become passionate worshipers. I find it fascinating that within just a few verses prior to these, Jesus tells us how to pray. Remember the prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, our our Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I find that phrase interesting. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me just pick on this for a moment. In heaven, what is happening in terms of worship? In heaven, there are, there are throngs of people. The, the glorious angels, all the beings worshiping God. And Jesus says, what happens in heaven, the way that God's kingdom works itself out in heaven, it's our job to work that same reality out on the earth. Bring heaven to the earth. Bring his kingdom here. And so what does that mean for our worship? Well, in heaven, when we consider their worship, and we have pictures of it, it's all over the book of Revelation. In heaven, when we think about their worship, let's just talk about musical worship for a moment. In heaven is the picture that we get, the picture that we're meant to bring here, is it men and women and beings standing in their, with their hands in their pockets, singing songs under their breath, thinking, when's the next song going to start? I don't like this one. I wish Kip was here today. (laughs) Where's Kip? Why does he have to take a vacation? What's the picture of heavenly worship? Passionate. It's passionate. Why is it passionate? Because the worship itself is not motivated by any of the songs that are being sung or any of the instrumentalists or any of the ones who are doing the singing. It's completely motivated by the one who is being worshipped and who he is and who we are. Fasting develops us as worshipers. And when we do this in private, it transforms how we worship in public. Your worship of God in community here on Sunday is a reflection of your worship of God all week in secret. And if our worship in community doesn't match our worship in secret, Jesus calls this very thing hypocrisy. So many people come to church to get their hearts right after nibbling at the world's table all week long. I have nibbled at the world's table. I've drunk from the world's drink. I have feasted at the world's table. And now I'm coming to church because I'm filled with a little bit of guilt and I need that fire hydrant of the gospel so I'll feel better about myself so I can go back and nibble from the world again. Here's the thing. The beauty of the gospel is that this is a place, this gathering, this service, this time. It is a place for us to experience real healing Hope, forgiveness, grace, and love. We are all coming in here desperately broken and in need of healing, hope, forgiveness, grace, and love. 
But how can we offer healing, hope, forgiveness, grace, and love to one another if we've been fasting from Jesus during the week and feasting on the world? See, friends, fasting helps us feast at the table of the gospel, which impacts our worship and our ability to love one another to be here together to encourage one another, to pour out that fruit onto one another's lives. And it's so important in the context of community and worship for the glory of God and for the health of his people. The last one, briefly, Jesus gives us a third principle that will help us maintain a healthy relationship with God. Look at the last phrase. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you Fast expectantly. Expecting what? Expecting a reward. Well, what's the reward? What's the reward from fasting? This is the reward. When we demonstrate our dependence upon our gracious Heavenly Father, He rewards us with more of Himself, with more of His comfort. When we seek him and say, I'm going to lay down every other appetite that I have because I want to focus solely on my appetite for you, then he answers that and fills us with his comfort. It's not a worldly comfort. It's a better comfort. It's the comfort of deity itself, himself. He gives us more of his presence. When our children come to Katie and I and say, I need you. What do we do? If Eliza runs up in desperation, Daddy, I need you. What do we do? I don't care. Figure it out. No. We look at her, and when our children come to us in desperation and they ask for our help, we say, what can I do for you? I'm with you. I'll help you. And that's what fasting does for us. God, see, is a perfect heavenly father. He's a good father. And I want to ask you this morning as we close, are you spiritually obese? Have you gorged yourself on biblical truth? You know plenty of phrases and verses and principles associated with the gospel and the word of God but you are not exercising your faith by following Jesus. You're weak. Are you spiritually anorexic? You have a stocked grocery store in the church, and friends, we have a stocked grocery store. There's all of you guys. I mean, there's incredible people here. It's an incredible church family. Do we have our warts, our problems, our issues? Yes, we're human beings, but it's a stocked grocery store. Uh, But you are starving yourself from the community that you need because you don't actually think you need it. Uh, You're starving yourself from the time with the Lord that you need, but those nutrients aren't satisfying you right now because there's other appetites that have slowly, subtly crept in. Or are you growing stronger? Are you healthy? Let's fast from an appetite this week. That's my challenge to you today. 
that you would fast from an appetite. And you know what they are because only you know your motivations. Maybe it is food, basic need. Maybe it is a sexual impulsion. Maybe it is a material pursuit. Maybe it is the approval of people through something as silly as social media. But fast from something just simply to say to your father, I want you the most. I hunger for you. I want you to be my first love. I need you. And then feel his comfort. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth, this this ancient practice of giving up basic things like food so that we might demonstrate our dependence upon you. That we give up appetites so we can focus on and develop an appetite for you. Some of our appetites for you, Father, are lacking. But even if they are not lacking, even if we are hungry, Father, you are a buffet table that will never get old. You're a buffet table that gives us everything that we need. So, Father, forgive us for the times that we run to the table of the world and nibble from its crumbs. Insatiable appetites will never be filled. And Father, instead, help us to turn our attention and our focus on our perfect heavenly Father and all that you have given us. And you've proven it by giving us Christ who gave up everything so that we might gain everything. He is our prize. And Father, I pray that if there are any here who do not know him and his gospel, that they would just call out to you today in desperation saying, I have a lot of appetites, Lord. And you haven't been near the top of the list, not even close. But I want you to be because I know that nothing else satisfies. So I bend my will to yours. Fill me. Father, may we be a people dependent upon you this week. May we be a people who submit our appetites to you so that you will always and only be our first hunger. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.